the New Testament reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. We're going to continue in our series in uh, 1 Corinthians and actually 2 Corinthians next year. Uh, and we are entitled this uh, series, Paul's Troubled Church, or Paul's Compromised Church. It was a really messed up place, and uh, one of the musicians last week offered me a, a different title for the sermon series, but I can't repeat it here. But he was picking up on just how messed up this place was, and at the same time, how comforting that is for us. And uh, we're going to continue looking at um, 1 Corinthians 9 as Brooke read. And as we do so, let me pray for us to get started. Dear Jesus, we have seen this morning uh, an image, an echo of what was happening all those many years ago in Corinth, where people were coming to faith from a variety of places. And we're so grateful to see that happening in a minor way here, and we pray that it would continue. We pray that Paul's words this morning commissioning us to, uh, to work to win those to the gospel, that you would do that through us, that we would take that seriously, and that we would begin to see more and more people not only enter into uh, the doors of in-town from other pastors, but also come to faith. And we pray that maybe even this morning there would be people who are considering what it would be like to be a Christian and that they would take one uh, more step closer to you and that you would take a step towards them and towards all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone tired of the election yet? <laughs> I know I am. Um, and it's not only because it's been particularly nasty and frustrating this year, but because we've been talking about the presidential election of 2016 since at least 2014, almost two years of constant conversation about who might be the nominee, who might be the president, and what that would mean. 
And in between, we are also dealing with uh, state and local elections, congressional elections, senatorial elections. And in the midst of this perpetual political climate, politicians seem almost out of necessity to modify their positions constantly depending on who they're talking to. To win their party's nomination, they have to appeal to the base, and so they generally move either more conservative or more liberal, and then to pivot after the general election, some of them pivot, some of them don't, to appeal to the middle, to the broad middle, and they're now going to be the moderate that's going to be a bridge builder and going to bring both parties together and work across the aisles. And we've come to accept a certain level of posturing, haven't we, in our political candidates. But for most of us, even though we accept it as normal, it still feels like posturing. It feels like inconsistency and dishonesty and insincerity. And if you go online to YouTube, you can see videos of Trump versus Trump and Hillary versus Hillary, where people have spliced together statements that they've made, and then they argue not with the other candidate, but with themselves from previous things that they've said, sometimes years ago, but often even just bare weeks and months ago. And so it may come as a surprise or a shock to you when you hear Paul saying that to the Jews he became as a Jew, to the weak he became weak, to, all, for, to reach all people he became as they were, became all things to all men. It sounds like Paul could have been a very adept modern campaign manager. Is Paul really telling us to adopt this chameleon-like approach to the Christian life and to bearing witness to him? Are we to practice the very things that we just can't stand in our politicians and that we don't tolerate in our friends? Well, Paul is continuing to address some concerns here. Let me give some context. That he has received letters, he has received um, some condemnation from this church that he has planted. He said in verse 9, uh, 3 that we didn't read, to those who sit in judgment of me and my choices. So the apostle Paul is getting judged by the church that he planted. Why is this? What are the things? Well, we've seen a couple of them, but particularly here, one of the things that's going on is that it was very common in Corinth for wise people, for teachers to receive patronage, to be paid. They would be employed either by a large household or by a group of households by the city, and that was their job, sort of how you would employ an artist, whereas a wealthy donor would patronize the art artist in order to get certain pieces for themselves. And so, this demonstrated in Corinth, their status, that you had arrived if you had a patron, if you could afford to live based upon you being a teacher of wisdom. But Paul won't accept this. He doesn't receive patronage. In fact, he continues to be a tent maker, which to them was very menial work. It was very just manual labor. Here's the Apostle Paul who has a right to be paid, and yet he continues to be a tent maker. But they also challenge him on this deference that he shows to new converts, to what they're calling here weak people, those who have scruples about the kind of meat that they eat. And Paul shows deference to them, and they can't stand it. That is, the Corinthians. Paul is telling them that the strong, the mature, 
are to limit their freedom for the weak. And the Corinthians think this is preposterous. If Paul is an apostle, if he's a teacher, if he's a leader, he's the one that should be dictating how people eat and what they eat and how they live. To them, it seems that Paul is being duplicitous and cowardly even. Around the mature, he seems to eat what he wants, but he lets these immature people tell him what he can't, can and cannot eat. And he won't get a real job, but he insists on doing this menial work. Paul, you should act with more gravitas, with more dignity, like the others that we listen to. And Paul gives a response, and he gives a response that has one orientating principle, and it gives three examples of it, and then finally he concludes with a metaphor. One principle. Paul says in verse 9, I said three, one principle. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What he is saying to them is that I have the position in which I could completely pull rank on you. I'm Paul the Apostle. I have seen Jesus in person. He could pull rank on them. He is free in all the important senses because he has been set free by the gospel. But, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. And we see the principle here that Paul is giving us, and we've seen it alluded to, that Christian freedom is not a freedom from restraint, but it's a freedom for Jesus and His mission. Christian freedom is not a freedom from restraint, but it is a freedom for Jesus and His mission. It is a freedom for the service of God and His gospel. Paul's freedom, paradoxically, is found in being enslaved to the mission of God and to those who need the gospel. It's in his renunciation of his rights, not in claiming them and holding them, that he finds his true freedom, that he finds his true delight. Now, why is this? And is this just Paul? No, he is giving us a principle that should apply to each and every one of us if we are a Christian, because what he is saying is that enslaving himself to God's mission and to the people that need the gospel, he gets to share in Jesus' sacrificial action. And like Jesus... He gets to receive the joy that only comes in the abdication of rights, that only comes when we give up our personal demands upon life and others, when we give up our autonomy, and we begin to live for the good of other people, that that is true freedom because that's an echo of Jesus Himself, who Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, he says, who, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. God, Jesus, all-powerful, the ultimate strongman, chooses weakness, 
chooses service. And Paul sees this at the very center of Christianity, as if to say, if you don't get this, Corinthians, you don't get Jesus. You don't get the gospel. In some way, Paul seems to be saying that to live as Christ does is to recover humanity's calling. It is to recover himself. It is to, in fact, be himself, to become the most human person that he can be. Christian freedom, then, isn't, again, to do whatever you want, but it's a freedom from all of those things that keep you from being the person that God made you to be. Paul lives this way in order to win as many as possible, to draw as many as possible to see this way of life, to recover their humanity, to recover their self, to live in true freedom, not imaginary or superficial freedom. And this is what's so important. With the gospel as the center, with the gospel as the weight, he's able to adapt his behavior, his methods, in whatever way necessary to achieve that. So he gives us that one principle, but then he gives three examples of how this works out in his daily life. He says, first of all, to those who are Jewish, I became as if I was a Jew. Now, that's astonishing because we all know, what is Paul? He is Jewish. But he says that now, having become a Christian, he has to become as if he is a Jew. He could only put it this way as if Christianity was a radical, radically new thing and not just a subset of Judaism. The boundaries of God's people have now transcend ethnicity and geography. God's, peoples begin, God's people begin to overflow the banks into other nations, into other ethnicities, into other geogra- geographies. And for Paul, and here's what's so amazing, the gospel so radically transforms him that though he is still ethnically Jewish, he is not essentially Jewish. What the gospel says about him far supersedes what his individual cultural heritage does. This is so important for us to get. Our identity as Americans, if you are here this morning and this is your home, it is so important to us and it is so ingrained in us that it almost rises to the level of our first, our primary identity. But the gospel doesn't in some way relativize our identity as Americans. If you're born here, if you live here, if you immigrated here, the term American continues to apply to you when you become a Christian. You don't cease to be an American, but it's not your primary identity any longer. You cease to be essentially defined in a similar way by your political allegiances. You cease to be defined essentially by your racial or ethnic heritage. You cease to be defined essentially and only by your sexual identity. Something far supersedes it. What Paul is saying is that the gospel has so radically transformed him that now he has to try hard in order to live as 
a Jew. Could you say that your Christianity has radically altered you to the point that it takes effort to enter into the American cultural mainstream? For Paul, while he was with Jewish people, he practiced Jewish customs, dietary law, prayers, going to the synagogue, because it didn't strike at the vitals of his religion to continue to do those things. He could participate in their customs out of respect and to not create unnecessary hurdles for the gospel and for his ministry. I didn't have uh, sushi until I was an adult, I'm embarrassed to say. I didn't learn to use chopsticks until I was in my late 20s because I grew up in Alabama and there's just not a lot of sushi restaurants there. Um, and so it took practice. But now I'm quite good at using chopsticks because every time I'm in a Chinese or Thai or Vietnamese or Japanese restaurant, which is like all the time, I use chopsticks. And I do it not because necessarily I'm more, now more adept than using a fork. A fork is so easy. But I do it because I view myself when I go to those restaurants as a guest that the host is laying out this meal for me, and I'm adopting their customs, if only for a few moments, to inhabit their world and to experience what it's like to live in a place like Vietnam or China and eat in their customary ways. It doesn't demand anything of me essentially except a little practice. And it's at this level that Paul chooses to accommodate, to adapt, He gives up. He sacrifices his own cultural preferences in order to build bridges with those he ministers to. So as a Jew, he says, with the Jews I became as a Jew. To those not under the law, second example, I became as one not under the law. It's a totally different group. He's talking about the Gentiles here. And he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law. These are the people that Paul was primarily called to. The Romans, the Philippians, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Gentiles. And while planting churches in Rome and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus, he doesn't live, we think, as an observant Jew. He doesn't demand kosher food when he's ministering in a Gentile pluralistic community. I had the opportunity to go to Sweden last summer. It's an awesome country. And right near our hotel, there's a restaurant called the American Patriot. Now, why would an American travel all the way to Sweden to eat hamburgers and milkshakes and fries? I did go there because they had really good beer. (laughs) But if you were a missionary in Sweden, You wouldn't set up all your appointments with people in the American Patriot as if to say, come to my turf. Let's meet so I can share hamburgers with you. What is American cuisine anyway? It's just a mishmash. You would go, you would embrace the culture. You would dine where the people wanted to dine. You would learn to eat Swedish food. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Now, we realize that, this is, that any translation is interpretation. So, whatever Bible you're holding in your hands, 
Well, no one brings their Bible to in town. But if you did have a Bible in your hand, you need to recognize that it is not only a translation, but it is an interpretation that the writers of that translation make interpretive choices. And so anytime you're tempted to say, well, the Bible says, make sure that it's actually what the Bible says, and it's not just your English translation. A little bit of an aside there. But we realize this because this sentence, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, is only three words in the Greek. Anomos, hos, anomos. My seminary education is paying off. I can actually pronounce Greek words. To the anomos, those without the law, he became, Paul became, anomos. Okay? But he is not lawless. He becomes instead in nomos Christu. He becomes under Christ's law. And this is so important. What Paul is doing here is he is creating a play on words that the Corinthians would understand, that he's pushing against this idea that the Corinthians had that gospel freedom was freedom from moral constraint. And what Paul is saying again is that he's not free to do anything at all, not at all. He has this powerful sense of obligation to God, but it's defined not by a legal code, but by his relationship with Jesus, by the person of Jesus. Jesus' manner of giving his life away is Paul's new law. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' life is being imprinted upon him that he is pushed down by the weight of Christ's law, his life, that Paul is trying to seek to live in the manner that Jesus does. And this is your new law if you are a Christian. And notice, I alluded to this earlier, but it is precisely because of Paul's commitment to the gospel. It's precisely because of his the law of Christ that centers him enough that he is able to be open and adaptable to different groups of people. You see, he's not being wishy-washy. He's being evangelical. He's, being, he's sending the gospel out. They have these things in buildings, in tall buildings, called tuned mass dampers. And they're either at the very top or the very bottom, and there's, there are these gigantic hundred-ton weights, even larger than that, and are heavier than some skyscrapers. And what they do is when the skyscraper moves one way, it moves the other way, and it keeps the building upright in a storm or in an earthquake. Tune mass dampers. For Paul, the gospel is his tune mass damper. It is deep enough, it is heavy enough, it is significant enough that he can move in and out and in and through other cultures. He can adapt, he can accommodate without being an accommodationist. He can be centered. He's able to be conversationally agile and culturally accommodating because, and only because, he's so deeply rooted at the center. So maybe the chameleon description is apt after all, because a chameleon changes what? Only their, out, their outward appearance. They change externally, a chameleon, when it changes colors, is still a lizard. Is it a lizard? Amphibian? I don't know. But you get the point. It stays essentially what it is. 
It changes its color, but it is still a lizard or an amphibian. To fit into its environment, it alters external, superficial things without changing, essentially. Fascinating. Now, one more example, and then we'll, we'll finish with the conclusion. He says to the weak, and this is very interesting because verses 20, 21, and 22 form what is called an inclusio. Don't run for the door. Hold on. It's important to hear. He says in verse 20 that he became as a Jew. And then verse 21, for them I lived under the law. For the Gentiles I lived outside the law. Verse 22, I became. And we accept We expect, because he says in verse 20, I became as a Jew, in verse 22, he's going to say, I became as a Gentile, because it mirrors verse 20, but he doesn't say this. He says, I became weak. To the Corinthians, this is absurd. The Corinthians valued strength and valor and honor, and so Paul comes believing that the only way that the Corinthians are going to really get the gospel is if, is if he comes embodying the very opposite of all of their cultural presuppositions. Paul comes to the upwardly mobile, and he works as a tent maker doing manual labor. He comes to those infatuated with patronage, and he refuses to be patronized. He refuses to be beholden to anyone with money. He comes to those who are enthralled with individual rights and freedom, and he limits his own freedom as an example for them to follow. Now, this letter is nearly 2,000 years ago, but don't these things strike a chord with us? Isn't he leaning on us, or isn't the Holy Spirit leaning on us through Paul's words? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not yet a Christian, but don't we all buy into rights talk? It's going to come all the way down. Don't we all buy into rights talk? Don't we tend to move away from anything that appears to impinge upon my individual choices and my individual autonomy? And so if you're here this morning and you're asking, well, okay, I'm following you, but now I need to check, does this confirm my personal beliefs? Does this affirm how I think about the world? Well, my response is, why bother? Why bother taking on a religion that doesn't challenge you, that doesn't challenge you not only in the externals but in the very center of who you are? Why bother if that's not the case, if it doesn't in some way limit your choices? Why bother? But for those of us who are insiders, the same could be asked of us. Why are you here this morning? Are you here at church because you happen to find in town confirms everything that you already believed before you got here? Are you here to be reaffirmed over and over, to enter into sort of an echo chamber, or are you here to be pushed into a missional life, to actually be challenged over and over in the core of who you are? Are you challenged? Are you here to be challenged to sacrifice your rights for those 
around you. Haven't we seen in this election how easy it is to stir up otherwise well-meaning Christians into a a vicious defense of their rights? I've got to hold on to my rights because someone's going to take them. We are drawn to strength. We are drawn to a religion that puts us on the winning team. What would it look like instead for you to sacrifice your cultural comforts in order to win as many as possible? Now, let me speak one level down, just those who belong to InTown, to those who are regulars here, because many of you are aware that InTown is having this internal conversation, a discernment process, that we are now about a 15-year-old church, and we're asking, what kind of church do we want to be 15 years from now, and what type of things do we need to set in place institutionally in order to allow us to get there? And if you're not aware of these conversations, uh, you will be, because we're having them actively and broadening the circle each and every week. But we want to take an opportunity to ask, how can we be a church who is intentionally staying radically committed to the center, to the deep things of the gospel, to Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection, while at the same time, and because of that, being agile and adaptable in the culture that we inhabit in order to win as many as possible. In other words, can we learn how to eat with chopsticks as a church in order to adapt into our culture? Can it be precisely because of our commitment to the gospel, to the law of Christ, that we can be accommodating without accommodation, that we can be open and welcoming yet rooted that we can identify and lower our cultural and preferential behaviors that are hurdles to others from the outside who are trying to get to Jesus. And I just want to encourage you as these conversations continue to take place that it's so easy to frame the conversation in terms of what do I get out of this? Or does it affirm what I already think? Are my concerns addressed? Does this potential change create minimal disruption for me? Or maybe we could ask, what positions us as a church to reach, to win as many as possible? We don't in any way want to neglect your questions or to minimize legitimate concerns. That's why the leaders and I are taking so much time to spend time over lunch in community groups and concentric circles over and over to address different questions. But we're trying to reframe the discussion in the most vital and missional way possible. Listen to Paul in conclusion. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The Isthmian Games is probably what Paul is talking about here, and these were sort of a a corollary to the Olympic Games, and they were held every two years in Corinth. And athletes, just like Olympic athletes do, dedicated themselves to training rigorously to win generally one particular event. And if they won, after years of training, after denial of self, after practice, after eating right, investing all of their free free time, they got a crown. 
and it was a crown of withered celery. It's kind of gross. Now, modern Olympic athletes, they get a medal, gold, silver, bronze. It's more valuable than withered celery, but what do you do with it? You put it up in a case, and you look at it, and then it withers, and it tarnishes, and you die, and it goes to someone else. If these men and women, Paul is saying, exhibit such devotion to win a crown of withered celery, how much more should Christians be devoted to the life of Christ, to the law of Christ, and to winning as many as possible to that new life? Jesus commissions you to be weak, to be vulnerable, to be soft towards a world that needs the hope of the gospel. But before he commissions you, he became weak in order to win you. You see, he looked upon you, he looked upon me, and he said, I will do whatever it takes to have this person, this particular person. He looked out and he saw Steve Gomez and said, I will do whatever it takes to have him. Insert your name there. He became weak. Far from just crossing cultural or preferential barriers, he leaves the throne room of heaven. He trades a crown of unimaginable light and glory for a crown of thorns for you and for me. He comes into our dark world and suffers and dies to win you. Now go and do the same. And it's in doing so that not only will you win others, but you will become one who feels the delight of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it takes wisdom to learn how to be ministers of the gospel in a city that we love and cherish and we have friends outside. And it would be so easy to change in the deeper places of who we are to accommodate cultural things that tell us that we are absolutely wrong about the deep questions of life. Father, I pray that we could stay committed to the answers that you have given us to those questions while also at the same time loving the city that we inhabit and loving its people and loving its culture and adapting in ways that helps us bridge the distance between uh, your church and the people outside. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and that you would help us, that we would be a church that does involve those who are outside in an intentional, loving, and welcoming way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.